Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture was given by Professor Robin Jensen, the Patrick O'Brien Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and is entitled Epiphany, Visuality, and Christian Art. I was telling Elizabeth that I cut this lecture down radically, and now I expanded it by adding a couple of extra pages, so I hope I'll tell you when I make this funny little seamless, not so seamless, transition to something I've added back. Um, and let me know if you can't hear me in the back. I'll use my best lecturer voice. Um, and for those of you who are not used to my American accent, I will try to slow down a little bit. Um, we'll hope for the best. But I'll trust you to go, slow down. <laughs> All right. Both Jews and Christians insist that the transcendent divine being is imperceptible to mortal bodily eyes. The prologue to the fourth gospel asserts, no one has ever seen God, John 1.18. This claim is echoed and expanded in 1 Timothy, which describes God as immortal, dwelling in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or ever can see. God is infinite, intangible, and most of all, invisible. The Hebrew tradition complicates this assertion, however, by implying that God may not precisely or essentially be invisible, but is rather concealed or simply beyond human capacity to see. This is suggested by the text of Isaiah 45. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. In other places, Hebrew scripture recounts stories of some who did see God, albeit partially, provisionally, or insofar as God wills it. For example, after Jacob wrestled with the stranger, he claimed to have seen God face to face and lived. Isaiah, who saw God high and lofty sitting upon a throne, declared that his eyes had seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Probably the most famous instance is Moses' request to see God's glory, which was accommodated by a fleeting glimpse of God's backside. While Moses earlier had seen the unconsumed burning bush, now he was denied the sight of God's actual being, primarily for his own protection, for, quote, no one can see God and live, Jacob aside. That's Exodus 3, 17 to 23. Seeing or touching the divine is dangerous, as you know perhaps from the book of Numbers about the tabernacle. The New Testament epistle to the Hebrews recalls the encounter, this encounter 
when, of Moses with an interesting variance. It says, by faith, Moses left Egypt, unaware of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. Now, despite its relative impossibility and its serious danger, one of the Bible's repeated themes is the human, human yearning to look upon God. The psalmist pleads, do not hide your face from me, Psalm 27, and asks, when shall I come and behold the face of God, Psalm 41. St. Paul expresses hopeful anticipation of a future unmediated encounter in his first epistle to the Corinthians. As you know, it says, for now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. This longing is reiterated in 2 Corinthians, where the apostle declares that seeing the glory of God will transform the faithful from one degree of glory into another. And similarly, the first epistle of John maintains, quote, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And finally, you might be thinking of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which affirms, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Other ancient religious traditions and philosophical systems likewise claim the transcendent divine being to be essentially ineffable and imperceptible to creatures. Nevertheless, ancient myths and classical literature from Homer and Hesiod onwards recount instances of gods manifesting themselves to mortals, although briefly or in disguise, thus withholding their presumably awesome and frightening reality. Thus, the Greco-Roman gods were undeniably visualizable, and their, and, their and their adherents were uninhibited about fabricating and venerating images of their gods in anthropomorphic form. Although, with enough conventional attributes to aid recognition. And here we have. Oh, that was my. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go there. <laughs> um, so here's an example. Such representations like these were abundant and accessible. Encountering carved or drawn or painted or molded figures of the gods was a core aspect of traditional religious practice and an almost daily occurrence in antiquity, since the ubiquitous cult images were lodged in both private and public spaces temples, baths, gardens, libraries, courtrooms, and domestic shrines. Some images even depict the witnessing event itself. Here's a case of a couple of, of devotees coming to see Kivali and Attis, and you see how much bigger the gods are than the devotees. Occasionally, cult statues would have been objects of singular beauty, although probably most were simply mass-produced copies. Some were clearly objects of veneration, others were probably only domestic decorations. Whether merely garden ornaments or artistic masterpieces, God's images were essential to the Greco-Roman religion. And this made it especially difficult for polytheists to understand 
Hirschen claims to have an exclusive, singular, and above all, imageless God. This difficulty was voiced by a character in a third century document, a constructed dialogue between a Christian and a pagan, in which the Christian protagonist responds to his adversary's scoffing critique of his new faith. The pagan insists that the Christian lack of temples or altars or images of the god, their god, is both unintelligible and probably scandalous. He presumes that Christians want to conceal their god from public appraisal because they are ashamed of him or practice a secret and possibly dangerous cult. And this comes from Minucius Felix's uh, dialogue called the Octavius written around 200. Defensively, the Christian asserts that humans are themselves the images of God, and furthermore, that Christians neither see nor show their God, and this is precisely why they believe in him. He says, do you want to see God with eyes of flesh when your very own soul on which you depend for speech and life you can neither behold nor grasp? Now, interestingly, he never mentions Christ or the human incarnation. And this omission is surprising, primarily because Christians tend to attest that the incarnation is one way the divine being actually did appear in the world. And this assertion is already found in the epistle to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. Or the epistle to the Hebrews, which says he is the exact imprint of God's very being. And a famous passage from John's Gospel, which claims, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Accordingly, the invisible divine image becomes visibly manifest in a unique way in Christ. In other words, Jesus' incarnation, his corporeal form, meant that early Christians, early Christians had to reconsider traditional Hebraic and Greco-Roman proclamations about God's absolute invisibility, even Greco-Roman prophecy. In Christ, the divine was comprehended both intelligibly and sensibly, even if the divine father's unmediated presence was still mainly experienced as an audible voice from heaven. The divine had entered the material realm. The sacred had engaged and transformed the profane. Now, Athanasius, a fourth century bishop of Alexandria and the famous champion of Nicene Orthodoxy, wrote a two-part apology in which he initially launches a blistering critique of pagan idolatry. Among other points, he claims that those who pay homage to images ignore and dishonor the craftsmen who made them. They worship the products of skilled artisans rather than paying tribute to the artists, and condemns idols for being as phony as the gods they depict, maintaining that those who venerate them are deluded, impious, and irrational. Yet, while condemning veneration of false images of false gods, Athanasius acknowledges that Christians are like pagans in one important respect. They do understand that seeing God is crucial for their comprehension of the divine. In a constructive second part of his treatise on the Incarnation, Athanasius elaborates what he regards as the orthodox explanation for God's coming into the world in human form. In it, he propounds a theology of visuality 
that he intends as a divine antidote to the deception of idolatry. He asserts that God is not hidden from sight, but evident in myriad ways and forms, including the beauties of creation. He's thinking of Romans 1, I'm sure, here. Yet mortals are often tricked into mistaking false images for true ones, or into offering the adoration due to invisible divine beings to mundane and even demonically possessed visible objects, being so distracted by worldly things that they confuse fuse illusions with reality. And for this reason, he says, the merciful and loving God first sent the law and the prophets to instruct the people in how to live a virtuous life. But when humans persisted in their evil habits and God wanting to redeem his perishing creation, God condescended to become physically and visibly present to the world. And thus, in the incarnation of the word, in a mortal body, humanity was confronted with its original image and likeness. And he says this, this is a quote from Athanasius. For as when the likeness painted on a panel has become effaced by stains from without, think portrait, um, he whose likeness it is must come once more to enable the portrait to be renewed on the same wood for the sake of the picture. Even the mere wood on which it is painted is not thrown away, but the outline is renewed upon it. And in the same way, the most holy son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to our region to renew humanity, once made in his likeness. So for Athanasius, this is why God made himself visible, not in order to come down and fix things, or even figure out at close range how they had come to be broken. Rather, Christ came to be sensibly, visibly present to creation, so that it could realize its original beauty. It wasn't sufficient to make a brief, he says this almost literally, it's not sufficient to make a brief corporeal appearance and immediately sacrifice himself on a cross and die. Christ's manifestation involved visible deeds that demonstrated his power and his purpose. Thus his earthly life included his human birth, death and resurrection and ascension but it was also included the evident manifestation of God's care for the well-being of his creatures. Um, thus, although they condemned and scrupulously avoided making images comparable to the idolatrous statues of the pagan gods, early Christians evidently regarded it as acceptable and maybe even necessary to produce and own pictorial art that painted uh, images of Jesus in narrative scenes. Beginning no later than the third century, depictions of Christ being baptized, healing the sick, raising the dead, and working other wonders appeared on the walls of Christian tombs and worship spaces and small personal items like glassware, gems, and pottery. And here's where I had a little mix up. So there's uh, a couple of catacomb paintings to reference this. And then here's a, a fragment of a fourth century sarcophagus in which you can see Jesus um, healing the man born blind here on this side and change, uh, multiplying uh, loaves of bread using a staff of power. Um, I can say more about how Jesus is depicted, but in this period, he's always depicted as beardless and youthful with long uh, curly hair. 
by the late fourth century, only by the late fourth century, Christians began apparently also to venerate non-narrative portraits of Christ and the saints. And this, I believe, is probably the earliest, if not one of the very earliest, non-narrative images of Christ. Um, it's from a catacomb. It's maybe 390 to 400. And there's a detail of it there. And you know, by this time, he's also going to be able to look kind of interesting. But this doesn't show him doing anything. It's now an, a, a portrait, a devotional for veneration. Um, this is a similar one of uh, Peter and Paul. This is in the Vatican Museum. Um, this is a portrait of Paul. They have very distinctive, this, this, you can really figure out Peter and Paul. They're always identifiable. Uh, Paul being uh, kind of lean and uh, long, narrow face, long pointed beard. The, he's the intellectual. Uh, Peter is always shown sort of the lowbrow guy, the kind of uh, man of action. Um, He's the administrator. He's the he's the intellectual. He's the, he's the brains and he's the brown, right? So that's how Rome thinks of them. Um, and then early on, we have one of the very earliest images of the Virgin with child uh, with two saints and a, and a, a woman who's uh, buried here who is venerating the Virgin um, and another image of Paul. Um, now. Some early witnesses objected to this development of devotional portraits. And I don't have time to go into all of them, but we can talk about them later if you want. But they observed, there was, there was some serious objection to this, observing that these images were akin to what their predecessors had decried as idols, as idolaters. Um, this comes especially from someone like Epiphanius of Salamis. Precisely, perhaps, in order to overcome the comparison, between uh, you know, pagan images of their gods and Christian images of Christ and the saints, Christians did not make freestanding images, no sculpture, but only two-dimensional paintings or relief sculpture that initially compiled scenes from many different biblical episodes. And they were assembled almost randomly as if a composition's message of salvation, and we've got an example here, could be intensified by a visual reference to a big number of proof texts. Um, this is a really strong contrast to what the Romans would have, how the Romans would have designed their uh, burial coffins with um, beautiful, carefully composed uh, scenes from one or two myths. But this one is just a jam-packed, throw it all in, get as much in as possible uh, images. So we see the raising of Lazarus, we see the man, healing of the man born blind, multiplication of loaves. Um, in the, on the far left is the scene of Moses, uh, or probably actually Peter, striking the rock in the wilderness. Here's the rest of Peter, his little roosters at his feet, and so forth. It's all just jammed together. Sometimes it'll be Adam and Eve. Daniel often shows up, Abraham and Isaac, and others. At the very top, you can see the three magi um, and the three youths. And I have a lot to say about that, but I'll come back to it, maybe. Nevertheless. While Christian's visual art was purposely different from pagan gods' portraits in that they weren't three-dimensional, um, not carefully composed, they had a similar purpose. To invite a viewer to imaginatively participate in the depicted events and so, I would argue, experience a kind of epiphanic encounter. 
For example, as already noted, during the third and fourth century, Christian art found in Rome's catacombs or in early Christian sarcophagi displayed scenes from biblical narratives. And these images so often are historians describe simply as didactic or illustrative references to scripture texts. I think there's a lot more to them than that. Many of the Old Testament scenes, and these do dominate, many of them, um, should be interpreted as typological references to Christ. Moses, Isaac, Isaac, Jonah, and Daniel, and perhaps even Susanna. Often the hand of God appears, and you can see, you have to ignore the happy couple who paid for the tomb so they get the biggest <laughs> real estate. But um, you see Moses receiving the law from the hand of God on this side, and on this side is uh, God's other hand telling Abraham to stop the sacrifice of Isaac. And this is really common. You get both the right and left hands, which is very nice. And here's another example. Um, okay, so I left my place. Um, the representations of Adam and Eve, either being created or tempted by the serpent, often include an image of a figure who looks just like Jesus, but is the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. So if you see here on the left, there's an image of um, Adam and Eve with a tree between them, and this bearded figure who's tapping Adam on the shoulder and looks just like Adam is meant to be the second person of the Trinity, um, who will then become the <laughs> incarnate as the person in the center who is raising the dead or, or, or changing the water to wine. Uh, here's another example of that. This time, um, we really have a lovely long sideburn Jesus here, um, <laughs> who is standing between Adam and Eve and looks a lot like Adam, which makes sense. He's the second Adam. And he's uh, presenting the, the labors. The, he's presenting the sheath of wheat to this naked Adam and um, a lamb to Eve, who will learn how to uh, uh, card, spin, and make uh, clothing. Among the most epiphanic, I would say, of the images are the baptism of Jesus. Here's a couple of examples. Um, and the adoration of the Magi. Both of these events, of course, are, are celebrated in the Feast of the Epiphany itself. Viewers of the Adoration of the Magi, in fact, witness a depiction of witnessing. The Magi, like the viewer, us, are invited to gaze upon the incarnate God. Images of Jesus healing or working wonders generally also include anonymous observers, as here, who are themselves witnesses. I'm going to come back to the theme of witnessing in a little bit. But when Christian art of the fourth century began to include non-biblical iconography, and I tell you, another way knows this, we don't have portraits of Christ, the Virgin Mary, or the saints really before 400. And this begins to dominate. Once this happens, these images dominated and almost replaced the earlier visual repertoire and served a purely devotional purpose. And now the act of witnessing assumed an intentional and reverently engaged viewer. Let me give you three examples. The first is a fourth century mosaic 
found in the Roman catacomb of Domitia. Now, this is not a portrait exactly, but here's a wonderful example, I think, of something special. This shows Christ, it's hard to see it, but shows Christ enthroned with an illuminous green mandorla. The mandorla here, an ancient Christian indication of sacred or God-granted power, appears in Christian art here, I think, for the first time, or at least close to the very first time. This full-body, supernatural aura of light, like a halo, emphasizes a figure's particular sanctity. In this early period, however, the mandorla is reserved for the figure of Christ or the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. And here's a great example. This is a small panel um, in the nave mosaics in Santa Maria Maggiore. Some of you may know this. And if you notice, this is the scene of Abraham's hospitality. It's done in two parts. One is Abraham seeing God uh, arriving, and the second part is the serving of the three at a meal. And in the upper part, only one of them is surrounded by this full-body halo. Um, and so that is obviously an indication of the second person of the Trinity, which is very complicated because by this time it gets a little heretical, but that's another story. Um, okay, so we go back to looking at this one. Somewhat below Christ and at his right and left, Peter and Paul sit in high back chairs and they turn to face him. A leather basket, it's kind of hard to see it, but you can see a leather kind of a brown thing. At the, it's a leather basket of scrolls that sits at Jesus' feet between the two apostles. The text in the arch above, hard to see this, reads, Quifilius vitreus a pater inveneris. You are said to be the son, but are found to be the father. That's another heresy, but that's another story. <laughs> On the inside left of the arch, again, kind of hard, I wish this were bigger, but you will see an image of Christ raising Lazarus. And here, his halo is the same green color as the mandorla in the center mosaic. And Lazarus's sister, Martha, appears kneeling to Jesus at his feet. She, remember, is the first to announce, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Above, you can sort of take out three little figures. One's in the center is in green with a red stripe. And these are the three Hebrew youths, standing unscathed in their fiery furnace. Between the first and the second youth is a figure, dimly you can see, can kind of make it out, who bears a distinct likeness to Christ in the Lazarus scene and presumably to the one below, enthroned. And this is the one who Nebuchadnezzar describes as having the appearance of a god in Daniel 3. So, who is being instructed here? Peter and Paul, or you and I, the spectators who look directly at the enthroned figure and read the text to discover that he is the image of the invisible father. The proximate images, the raising of Lazarus and the three ewes in the fiery furnace, Remind the viewer of Jesus' divine power to raise the dead and deliver the faithful from the trials of life, but also Martha and the, the fourth figure remind us that he is also the Messiah, the Son of God. Another example of a divine theophany or epiphany is rendered in a monumental mosaic in the apse images of an early 6th century chapel in the Thessalonican monastic church of Hasius David. Here in the center, 
A beardless Christ sits on a rainbow within another radiant mandorla. He raises his right hand in a gesture of greeting or blessing, and in his left holds a scroll, which invites the viewer, behold our God in whom we hope, and here rejoice in our salvation. So it's great. Behold. Beams extending from Christ's body illuminate the wider space around him and incorporate the figures of the prophet Ezekiel on the left and of John the Revelator on the right. Okay, behold. Behind the figure on the left is a cityscape. Behind the one on the right is a rocky outcrop. John the Revelator holds an open book while Ezekiel appears to be trying to cover his face as if in fear of the vision he has been granted. Let me give you a little bit of a detail on that. Maybe you see that better. This is a little clearer. It reminds us that Ezekiel saw something that seemed like a human form. This is a quote from Ezekiel 1. Like the bow in the cloud on a rainy day, such was the appearance of splendor all around. This, he says, was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 1, 26-28. Beneath Christ's feet, four rivers spring from the rock of Eden and form a river, a bigger river, that frames the scene. And you'll notice this actually, right here is a figure of a river god. You can see his face. And there's some fish and other things in here. So this is the four rivers forming this big one. Um, and the dedicatory scripture below, uh, inscription below this reads, the precious house is a life-giving spring that nourishes the souls of pious believers. The four-winged creatures from both Ezekiel's vision and the book of Revelation emerge from the sides. Thus the prophets, Ezekiel and John, behold the Lord. But here the viewer is included in their visionary experience, not unlike the one John was granted on Patmos. A final example, maybe many of you know this one, is the famous Transfiguration Apse Mosaic from St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. This draws upon a unique instance of theophany in the New Testament, the Transfiguration. According to the Gospel accounts, these three apostles, Peter, James, and John, were granted a vision of Christ's divine glory through his physical transformation, a foreshadowing of his resurrection and his ascension. One of the earliest depictions of this event, this is one of the very earliest, and everything gets modeled on this one afterwards almost. It, this emphasizes the divine light emanating from Christ's body, an uncreated light only proper to him and a visual manifestation of his divine as well as his human nature. So now we get to see both natures. While the mosaic illustrates the experience of revelation or mystical vision accorded to the three apostles, it extends the experience to the worshipers who contemplate it from the church floor below, or those of us who get to see a slide of it, you know. At the center of the composition, the blue banded mandorla that enclosed Christ's body grows progressively lighter in color. 
Thus, Christ appears to emerge out of darkness and to bring the light into the scene. That's further uh, emphasized by the six beings of divine light extending from Christ's body to the witnessing apostles and the adjacent figures of Elijah and Moses. The two panels above, oh, I'm come back to this. The two panels above the scene show Moses' epiphanic experiences. Now, this is really interesting because we are at Sinai, so we should be seeing Moses, but we see the transfiguration, which is really great. So above, we actually see the Sinai episodes. Moses first at the burning bush and then receiving the law. The two panels relate in crucial ways to the rest of the app's composition. In this one, Moses' grave is directly at the burning bush, but when he receives the law, he turns his face away. Notice that. In the transfiguration scene, here we are. In the transfiguration scene, Moses, Elijah, and the apostles all gaze toward Christ. Even Peter, who's rising from sleep and directly below Christ's feet. Now here's James. Now, what's really wonderful about this is this is the moment when Moses finally receives his direct face-to-face -face vision with God, the culmination of his spiritual ascent. And this comes up in all of the patristic writers. This composition then illuminates a biblical narrative about beholding the divine glory while simultaneously recreating that experience for its viewers, us. Invited like Peter, James, and John, to witness the transformation of Christ's earthly body, viewers are likewise granted the confirmation of his divine nature and, like Moses, anticipate their own future face-to-face -face encounter. That very possibility was suggested in a sermon on the Transfiguration delivered by the Bishop Anastasius, a 7th century abbot of this same monastery at Sinai, on the Feast of the Transfiguration. He says, and this is a paraphrase, when the co-eternal word of God realized that the things he had spoken to his disciples were exclusively being considered in their minds, he decided to work a revelation for them on Mount Tabor as an image. But he did not reveal himself to those apostles only, but also to Elijah and Moses. Moses, who once gazed on the burning bush and then away from God's face when he received the law, now stands before divine power in human form, and he speaks these words. I see this great vision, you who have long laid, lain divinely hidden from me. You are now revealed as God. This is Moses speaking in the sermon. You are no longer hiding your face, but I see you face to face, and my soul is preserved. Nothing in the world is more delightful to me than to see you and be filled with your glory, your beauty, your image, your light, your speech, your revealed presence. How is it that you who said to me on Sinai, no human being can see my face and live, how is it that you have now appeared in earth, in flesh, face to face, and have associated with human beings? So, thus, all three images, the one in the catacomb, that fragmentary mosaic, 
the Hafiz David Aps Mosaic, and this one, testify to the belief that in Christ, the faithful attain salvific, sensible, as well as rational comprehension of God. Visionary experience is allied to intellectual perception. Now, I told you I was going to come back to eyewitnesses. Here it comes. I'm getting close now. Eyewitness accounts play a crucial role for validating testimony. We all know that. But the evangelist Luke claims to have had eyewitness, reliable eyewitness reports of their experiences of the events that he relates. Personal encounters, encounters, no matter how much the memory might alter them over time, are authoritative in ways that written statements cannot match. Just think about any law trial. We tend to believe what we see more than what we hear. Thus, if no one claims to have seen some event, we find it hard to believe it really took place. Similarly, the reports of those who have authenticated visionary experiences is a long-standing part of the Christian tradition. To rely on what can be seen or upon what trusted others disclose that they saw. Christians do not give equal weight to invented images or imagined events, even if they can accord them profound symbolic meaning. Eyewitness accounts, more than other kinds of evidence, including pictorial compositions, offer assurance and confirmation that something truly happened. Thus, beholding is crucial to the knowledge of God. Like Mary Magdalene in the garden, or the apostles on the road to Emmaus, or Paul on his way to Damascus, mortals are prompted to recognize the one in their midst. Consequently, seeing the word is no less salvific than hearing it. <laughs> Salvation is not only about assenting to certain dogmas or behaving according to ethical principles, though it is, the humans also need to perceive God in order to know God and become like God. John 1.3 affirms that this will happen in the future when he is revealed and humans will see him and know themselves to be like him. So what happens to those who did not encounter the earthly and temporally bounded corporeal figure of Christ in their or his earthly life? Of course, Christians believe that Christ is still present and available and even visible in the community of the faithful or through the sacraments of the church or the reading of sacred scripture or in petitionary prayer. But this may also be possible through the aid of certain types of material mediation, including visual art. The longing for visual, visible, and tangible experiences of the holy in general led Christians to find new ways to achieve them. For example, the cult of saints allowed an access to sanctity and a range of devotional activities the faithful could undertake. Already mid underway in the mid-third century, the tactile and visual dimensions of the cult of saints was dramatically developed in the fourth. Almost as if out of nowhere, Christians began to collect and preserve and reserve material links to holy persons and sacred events. Saints, though believed to be universally accessible to the prayers of the faithful, were regarded as particularly present at their tombs or in their bodily remains. St. Cuthbert. <laughs> While theologians insisted on God's universal presence, 
The masses persisted in believing that the places where Jesus ministered, died, was buried, or ascended to heaven were exceptional. Holiness was visible and tactile. Sanctity could be portable and even replicable. Pilgrims sought out living holy men and women and hired guides to lead them to the sites where Christian saints and the Old Testament patriarchs were buried. They worshiped at the places associated with biblical events, gathered earth and stones from those holy sites, and dipped cloth bands into the tombs of martyrs, procuring holy oil that had been poured over fragments of Jesus' cross. There's an example of a reliquary in which the oil would be gathered as it was poured over the relics. What emerged was a fully sensory and participatory form of piety. Smells, sounds, tastes, and texture played a role, but among the senses, envisioning was paramount. But what about those who couldn't travel to the holy sites or the martyr shrines? They also could experience this material sanctity, perhaps through the gift of a souvenir or monumental iconographic programs that began to appear on the walls and ceilings and floors of churches and shrines and baptistries and burial chambers. Pictorial art embellished liturgical books, ritual utensils, clothing and personal accessories, rings and bells and cups and dishware and patents and chalices and lamps. Devotees focused their prayers with the aid of large or small portraits of the saints or Christ or Mary. And here's an example. Here's another one. Portable icons that were set up on private altars were presented as gifts and often include depictions of candles and garlands and other offerings that resembled the actual objects devotees offered to their images, and sometimes even images of the devotees themselves. And here's another example. Here's a couple of devotees praying to a, an image of devotees praying to the image of a saint, which is kind of wonderful. Visual art aided the memory without which sensory stimuli is not easily retained. Like pilgrimages to holy places and martyr shrines, images provide alternate ways of encountering absent persons and vividly recreating past events. These practices starkly contradicted claims like those of the third century Manusius Felix, who I quoted earlier, who said that Christians lacked altars, shrines, and temples. A hundred years later, they're everywhere. Along with non-narrative portraits of Christ and the saints, sequential episodes from Martyr's Passion might be depicted in proximity to that saint's bodily remains. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit. And I have a quote here from Gregory of Nyssa. He's at a saint's tomb, and it's probably very useful, and I'm just going to read this and kind of come to the conclusion. He's at the tomb of St. Theodore, near Amasia in Pontus, and he says, when people come to a place like the one we are gathered today, which housed the memorial and holy relic of the just one, they are immediately inspired by the magnificence of the spectacle, seeing a building splendidly wrought and beautifully adorned. The painter depicted um, an image, on, on an image, the martyr's brave deeds, his resistance, his torment, the ferocious faces of the tyrants, the insults, the fiery furnace, the martyr's most blessed death, and the representation in human form of Christ who presides over the whole contest. All of these made by the means of colors, as it were a book that uttered speech. And so he both represented the martyr's feasts with all clarity 
and adorned the church like a beautiful meadow, for painting, if it is silent, is capable of speaking from the wall and being and from the walls and being of enormous benefit. So I'm going to pass over part of this. Theologians of the next century continued to develop a theory of vision that drew upon platonic theories of participation in which sight was a primary mode of knowing, and this is tightly linked with rational cognition. Augustine of Hippo, who, who did expressed a preference for seeking Christ in the apostles in written texts rather than printed images, no doubt, allowed, though, that the eyes play the leading role in the, among the senses in acquiring knowledge. He adds the work of the eye seeing is actually a way that one refers to intellectual comprehension and notices the vocabulary of sight is used to speak of knowledge generally. For example, our old English uses word, our English language uses words like perceive as a synonym, synonym for knowing, observe, discern, I see. They all mean I understand, but we use the language of sight. Similarly, the word insight expresses the idea that the mind grasps something that is only suggested by the bodily eye, transferring it from the external world to the internal interior one. If bodily seeing is a crucial medium or an agent for human mental cognition, I often question whether it's really appropriate for us to bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray. <laughs> One may hear God's voice, perhaps, or catch a sweet whiff of a sanctified body of a martyr, but from ancient times, sight was believed to be predominant among the five senses as a means of encountering the divine. So, in summary, the products of the early Christian artist, painter, sculptor, mosaicist, are not merely illustrative or didactic, as in the famous dictum of Gregory the Great, which suggests that pictorial art is merely for those who can't read the stories for themselves. I really don't like that dictum. I get quoted back to me all the time. <laughs> Rather, art is epiphanic in the sense that it makes an individual or an event manifestly present even long after they have passed or passed away. Moreover, viewing is itself a form of prayer or devotional activity. Beholding is not primarily instructive. It is revelatory, transformative, and even salvific. Perhaps more crucially, the image functions as a place in which the unseen and transcendent is not only signified, but actually encountered. In this sense, the sensible image becomes a medium in which this can happen, and it is epiphanic.